Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A big story that everybody was waiting for this week were the verdicts in the Harvey Weinstein trial. He has been found guilty in a sexual assault trial in New York on two charges, but acquitted on three others, including some of the more serious charges of being a sexual predator. The next phase in all this is sentencing, which will happen on March 11th, where he faces a possible sentence of 5 to 25 years. But it's not all over after that. Harvey Weinstein still faces charges in Los Angeles. For more on this story, we spoke to Shana Jacobs. She's a courts reporter at The Washington Post. The DA's office, and I think people who supported this prosecution, still consider it a victory. So he was acquitted of the top counts. That's true. Those counts related to a pattern of sex crimes, and they incorporated actress Annabella Sciorra with the two accusers who were ultimately part of the conviction charges, Mimi Halei and Jessica Mann. He would have faced a life sentence if he had been convicted on the top counts, although he's in his late 60s, and um, it's going to be widely believed that he'll face significant prison time regardless, and he faces a minimum of five years. So he's going away for at least five years based on today's conviction. The sentencing is not scheduled until March 11th, but really this isn't over even at that point because there's still some other counts that he's facing in Los Angeles that he would have to go to court for as well, right? He's facing certainly one rape charge and another sexual assault set of counts in Los Angeles. The LADA said at the outset of this trial that they wouldn't try to bring him out there until this was over. So it's not clear when they're going to try to get him there. The DA's office in L.A. is not saying, although now that he's in jail and if he remains in jail until he's sentenced, they would have to seek his extradition. My best guess would be that they're going to wait for his sentencing in March to try to get him out there where he'll start the whole procedure again. He's got to right. be arraigned and they've got to set bail. It'll be academic because he'll already be serving a sentence here. So that all sort of remains to be seen. And of course, his lawyers are going to try to get him freed from jail in the next couple of days, they're going to see if they can get a judge there to set bail on him again so that he can be free pending his sentencing. And Weinstein actually was just taken out of the back of the courthouse in an ambulance, although there's no medical emergency. It's just because he's on his way to the infirmary at Rikers Island. He had a back surgery or something, so he has difficulty walking. That's why you would see pictures of him using a walker and all. The jury consisted of seven men and five women There was a little bit of a dust up last week where they went to the judge and said, hey, you know, we can't decide on three of these counts, although we're unanimous on some of the other ones. So obviously we now we know what happened. How did the defense play the whole proceedings? Because they were kind of turning it back on the women, kind of tried to cast doubt on their accounts of what had happened. In general, the theory was that these women wanted something from him and sought relationships with him in order to either advance their careers or move up the social ladder, either in Hollywood or just in the world in general. And they were accused of victim shaming in the process of arguing that. But I mean, he's always maintained, and then I think to this day he maintains that he never had any sex with any of his accusers that wasn't consensual. 
So I, I assume that's going to continue to be the argument going forward. And part of the evidence that they presented were, you know, things like flirty text messages that happened after the fact or meetings or other consensual sexual encounters that happened after they had accused him of, of assaulting them. So these were kind of the things that were trying to play into the credibility of the women. These were factors that the defense definitely honed in on. And the prosecution put forth an expert witness who testified to the behaviors of sexual assault survivors. She wasn't allowed to talk specifically about the accusers in this case, but she did say that survivors often maintain relationships, sexual relationships or otherwise, with their abusers and that they often decline to report what happened to them to police, to authorities. So the DA's office tried very hard to make this jury understand that there are patterns in behaviors of survivors of sexual assault that were definitely at play here, and especially because of the power differential between Weinstein and these women. The only one who was famous was Annabella Shiora. The others were trying to make it in the industry, trying to make a name for themselves. Well, as I said, the next big day is March 11th, when we'll find out what the sentencing will be, and then off to uh, L.A. after that, I guess. So, Shana Jacobs, courts reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good night. This week, we also got an update on the college admissions cheating scandal. The Hot Pocket heiress, Michelle Janavs, was sentenced to five months in prison for her role in the admissions cheating scandal. She spent $300,000 to help her two daughters cheat on exams and secure admission for one of them to USC. And while parents are pleading guilty and not guilty, what is happening to the students wrapped up in the scandal? None of them have been charged with crimes, but they've also faced consequences in other ways. For more on how these students have been affected, we spoke to Kate Taylor. She's a reporter at The New York Times. In some cases, those who got into college already were kicked out of their colleges or had their admission revoked, which amounts to pretty much the same thing. Some of them had to take suspensions from college. Those who hadn't gotten into college at all at the time their parents were arrested and these charges were brought, in many cases weren't able to get into college or had ended up at a much less elite college than they were aiming for. And while their parents were using illicit means to try to get them into college, we don't know where they might have gotten in on their own accord if this hadn't all happened. So Michelle Janavs, her older daughter, for instance, she was angling to get her into USC and that didn't happen. She not only was rejected from USC, they told her you can never apply again. So she is now apparently going to community college. So they've really had their lives upended. And of course, a lot of people are going to ask, why should we feel sorry for these kids? They're still very privileged. And that is true. At the same time, I think for any young person to have your life so completely rewritten due to circumstances, in most of their cases, out of their control, most of these kids didn't know what their parents were doing, would be very difficult to cope with. And it's clearly going to be something that they're going to be processing for years to come. When this was going down, Mrs. Janav's two daughters were in junior and senior year of high school. So they got banned from things like graduation and prom. And, you know, for a young kid, those things are very important, not to mention people talk, kids talk. Yeah. And to be clear, they were barred from going to school at all. The school made a really 
interesting decision. And because the school wouldn't talk to me, I don't know why they did this. But they said that the girls had to complete their work from home for the rest of the year. They couldn't come to school at all. They were barred from campus, which is obviously a really extreme measure to take. Ms. Janov's lawyers said that the girls were shunned by friends and teachers. So it sounds like lost their whole social and academic world. And the younger daughter ended up transferring to a local public school. It's a tough position for the schools as well. Obviously, the colleges, you rescind their acceptance letters, all that. But for the high schools, everybody wants to take a tough stand on cheating. So, I mean, everybody's in a tough position when it comes to something like this. What about some of the higher profile students involved? Obviously, Felicity Huffman and her husband, William H. Macy. Only Felicity Huffman was in danger here. She's already pled guilty, went in and out of jail after just a very short time. What happened to their daughter? So her older daughter, whose SAT Felicity Huffman had paid someone to tamper with and get her a higher score, she was really hoping to get into Juilliard. She's an aspiring actress. Apparently, she had proceeded to the final round of auditions for Juilliard two days after her mother was arrested. She flew out to New York to do the final audition. And after she landed, she got an email saying, you're no longer welcome to audition. And her father, William H. Macy, described to the judge in a letter he wrote at the time of his wife's sentencing that their daughter called them from the airport in hysterics saying, please do something, please do something. Apparently, there was nothing they could do, so she hasn't ended up going to college, though she is still pursuing acting and has gotten some roles. Obviously, really emotional when you get a call on something like that. So far, there's been 20 parents, including Miss Huffman, that have pleaded guilty in all of this. There's 15 other parents, including actress Lori Loughlin, who have pled not guilty, and they're going to appear in trial. Lori Loughlin, obviously, one of the most high-profile ones in all of this still yet to go to court and figure out exactly what's happening. That's kind of the big fish that everybody's waiting for. She paid about, between her and her husband, $500,000 for their daughters. How has that been for them and then also for Lori Lachlan's two daughters? So her two daughters were both students at USC when Lori Lachlan and her husband were charged in this case. What we know is that they are no longer students at USC. We don't know if they were expelled or withdrew, what exactly happened. And it's not really clear what her older daughter is doing. Her younger daughter, Olivia Jade, who was a social media celebrity and influencer before all of this, wants to continue that career. She was silent on social media for about eight months, and then she resurfaced on YouTube in December with a very awkward, somewhat painful-to-watch video saying she was back and she really wished she could talk about what had happened, but legally she wasn't allowed to, but she really missed her fans. And it seems to have gotten largely negative reactions on YouTube, and she's only posted one other video since then. So it's not clear if her career as an influencer is going to survive this. Kate Taylor, reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, I want to talk about a massive voting block in the country, the non-voter. In 2016, nearly 100 million eligible Americans did not cast a vote for president. These are the non-voters. The Knight Foundation has now released the results of the 100 million project, which is the largest survey of chronic non-voters. In a nutshell, these people are less white, less educated, poorer, younger, and more likely to be a woman. We'll tell you why so many people choose not to vote, and if they were to vote, Who would benefit the most from their turnout? 
For all of this, we spoke to Yvette Alexander. She's the Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. So uh, some of the things that we learned were, first of all, we previously knew their demographics. This study reaffirms some of previous studies as far as what we saw for demographics. So, you know, chronic non-voters, it's almost 100 million people, as you mentioned. And so they really span the breadth of our American society. They exist in all socioeconomic groups, all demographic groups. That being said, they do skew younger, they do skew less educated, and they do skew lower income. They're slightly more likely to be minority and a little bit more likely to be female. So that was some that we saw in terms of demographics. Other findings that I would point out have to do with a lower trust in the election system than voters. They're less engaged with news and information. And uh, while they're a little less partisan, they're still pretty divided on key issues and on President Trump. What are some of the top reasons why these people are choosing not to vote? That's a complex question. And, you know, we definitely attempted to contribute to the insights around that by listening to non-voters tell us why they don't vote and also by comparing them with active voters on certain key political attitudes and behaviors. So when we ask directly why non-voters don't vote, there's a bunch of reasons that are given. Um, Nothing stands out as like a majority reason. But the number one reason that was given was that they simply don't like the candidates. About 20 percent a little more mentioned that they don't like the candidates, and that was the most common reason cited. Another common reason was that they felt their vote didn't matter. So that's a combination of not feeling like the election system or the government is one that they can trust, and a combination of being in a state or a district that is going to swing one particular way, and they feel like their vote's not going to make much of a difference. One of the things that came up why people don't vote also is they said there's no time for learning and deciding about what issues or the candidates. That was another thing that people felt they were just overwhelmed with the amount of news out there. And maybe that was a reason why they decided not to seek it out. Ballots are very long. You know, when you go in, you're not simply voting for the president, for example. There's many different elections on the ballot and candidates on the ballot, and then there's ballot issues. And so when focus groups, non-voters that felt uninformed on issues, they would say things like, I don't have the time to, you know, research all this stuff. They have other things that are competing for their time and other demands on their life. So they're choosing to engage with those things rather than, let's be honest, consuming lots of political news is in some ways a bit of a time luxury. So these these folks, by virtue of not being interested or by virtue of feeling like they don't have enough time to get educated, simply feel less informed. And also, I'll say that it was surprising to hear in focus groups that non-voters who felt uneducated on issues said things like, my vote would do more harm than good because I'm not educated enough, or an uninformed vote is worse than not voting at all. And so that was pretty concerning to hear. That plays into a lot of different things. Obviously, there's discussions about all the money that Mayor Mike Bloomberg is throwing into the Democratic race right now. And even on the president's side, a lot of the money that's going into advertising. And if people aren't actively seeking these things out or don't have the time to drill down on an issue, some of this advertising, some of these ad campaigns might really work if it pushes one of these non-voters to actually go out and vote. They might see something that they saw on a Facebook post or in TV and say, okay, cool, I'm going to vote that way. So it's an interesting dynamic how really everything kind of feeds into itself. Another question about these non-voters, if they were to vote, where would they go? It seems like their votes could be potentially up for grabs on every side. They might lean Democratic overall, but they do favor President Trump in a lot of key battleground states. 
That's exactly right. So, you know, it was a bit of a wash. You know, if all non-voters turned out to vote in 2020, you know, according to our survey, 30% would vote to reelect President Trump and 33% would vote for the Democratic nominee, the balance voting for a third party or they're still undecided. So that's pretty close. It's just a 3% difference between um, the Republican and Democratic nominees. But as you said, across battleground states, that differed quite a lot. So we looked at 10 different so-called swing states. And in those swing states, there were clear favorite. Trump was a clear favorite in certain swing states, including Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. One of the things that's also interesting of why a lot of people said they didn't want to vote is that they felt very disengaged from the whole process. A lot of people have been doing write-ups about your survey already. And one of the things that came up was back in the day with traditional campaigns, there was a lot of door-to-door campaigning, hey, vote for so-and-so. And there's a lot of these non-voters that feel like they're not even being engaged in the minimalist of senses. They're not even being asked to vote by a real person and they might not see their counterparts and their neighbors voting also. So this all kind of leads to this dynamic where they don't want to vote. People, campaigns and and everything have to connect with voters as individuals to be able to get them out there. Yeah, and I think they also need to be connecting with communities and social networks, not social media necessarily, but kind of the networks that we all belong to in society. And something that's a long-held theory in political science is, you know, this, these sorts of social network effects on voting participation. So if you are embedded in networks where people talk about voting, you see that they vote or they tell you that they voted or they plan to vote, you're more likely to vote yourself. There's a little bit of peer pressure going on in a way to be a part of the crowd. But there are large groups of Americans where that's really not the case. And that's true if you're in groups where folks are less likely to have a college degree. It's true in groups that when you move outside the professional workforce. And it's also true amongst younger people. There's not a lot of social reinforcement happening. And I just want to mention something back in response to your earlier question about the battleground states, Mm -hmm. that while there is a bit of a split between non-voters on, you know, who they would favor, that it all depends on who's mobilized for 2020. One of the last questions I have here is, okay, so we're talking about these non-voters. They feel disengaged. They're not part of this process. Sometimes they don't feel like they fit in here. They don't like candidates. There's a lot of issues going on, but what issues are important to them? I think immigration and healthcare still were some of the top issues that were important to these non-voters also. That's correct. I mean, there's not an issue that stood out for a majority of non-voters. Immigration was the top issue mentioned, but again, it was only 19% of non-voters citing immigration as a top issue. So again, a lot of that has to do with the part of the country you're in. You know, if there's conservative media happening in your orbit, you're more likely to say immigration. The next most common issue that non-voters cited was jobs and the economy, healthcare, gun control. So there starts to be a distribution amongst non-voters that are more on the left-leaning side of politics amongst a variety of issues, racism and race relations among them. Whereas on the right, with more conservative-leaning non-voters, immigration is kind of the dominant issue in their minds. Yeah, I mean, it's just a very interesting survey in this time where politics seems very polarized and the people on the left are voting that way and the people on the right are voting that way. It really seems like this swath of possible voters, these non-voters that choose not to participate regularly, they really need to be brought into it for people to start making really good headway. So it's just an interesting look into the non-voter Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.